Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business. The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world. I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko. Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake. Um. Listen to Art Fraud starting February 1st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Mama, what does the chicken say? Uh, dog. Cat. Giraffe. Giraffe, really? Giraffe. Uh, giraffe. You're not going to get it all right. Just make sure you nail the big stuff, like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Get it right. Visit NHTSA.gov. Slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome to Behind the Police, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Behind the Police, 
the special uh, mini-series for Behind the Bastards, which is normally a show that I, Robert Evans, do about the worst people in all of history. But for these weeks and these these episodes is is a deep dive into the entire history of American police, the greatest bastards of them all. <laughs> a collection uh, of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my guest in this journey into the history of policedom uh, is my friend Jason Petty, uh, better known as the hip-hop artist Propaganda. Jason, how are you doing today? What's up? Happy Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. The 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 actual uh, the actual one day of independence. Yes, you know. Yeah. Yes, the day that like we as a nation kind of sort of started to begin to try to live up to the promises made at our founding, except not for women. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's still, it's still another. Yeah. We're still waiting for another. Uh, <laughs> there's another independence coming soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of centuries. It's been a rough couple <laughs> centuries, guys. Um, yeah, yeah. Fun so, fact: the the thirteenth the Emancipation Proclamation was two years before this because the war wasn't done, and still yeah. we were waiting on Texas, and still we were waiting on Texas. Yeah. And in some ways still are. Still, yeah. <laughs> As a Texan, I can say. <laughs> I think yeah. we're still kind of waiting on Texas. So um, in honor of, I mean, this it won't be Juneteenth anymore when these episodes yeah. drop. But these oh, yeah, two huh? episodes this week, we're we're going real deep into um, the history go. of racism and policing. Um, the, 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 that's, that's what these next two episodes are going to be. And then after that, we're going to kind of get back to a broader history of policing and come up to the modern era. We'll talk about uh, the war on drugs and cops and stuff. But but uh, this this is the, these two episodes are going to be more focused on something that I think is critical, but not very well known to most people. You know, usually mm-hmm. there's there's one aspect to which kind of what we're talking about is known today, which is that if you if you've wound up at a protest recently, which I assume a lot of you uh, have, you may have heard the venerable left wing protest chant, cops and Klan go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a fan of Rage Against the Machine, I'm sure you're familiar with their their similar lines. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, we we talked a bit about how, um, you know, the, the, the sort of story spreading about slave patrols and how that was the origin of policing and how that was, you know, partly true, but not entirely accurate because it was more complicated than that. This is a case where the the kind of like pithy chants uh, and social yeah. media posts and stuff actually are really accurate like that. that yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to yeah. talk about today. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in in. In a very veiled defense for everybody else that didn't have to live these realities like there's some realities like something like a redlining like i understand be i understand that there is a wide swath of people you have to go out of your way unless you black to know what redlining is because it doesn't affect you you know what i'm saying right so i'm gonna give you that i i don't know this script but i know based on what the way that robert's leading in I have an idea that I'm probably going to know these stories, but I'm pretty sure you don't because they ain't affected you. You ain't never thought about redlining because you, you never. there was never a time that your grandparents was looking at a neighborhood and was like, we can't live here. And it's not because you couldn't afford to live here. It's because you wasn't allowed to live here. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I understand that you don't know this. There's probably things in your life like we could talk about some Native American heritage and stories and yep. such like that that you probably would have no idea unless you went out in your way. I went out of my way to learn those things because I understand what it means to be an oppressed person. So 
strap in. This is about to be earth shattering for you. It's it's going to be rough. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, in the immediate wake of the war, you know, remember after part one, you know, we kind of yeah. ended on slave patrols just turning right into police uh, departments. Yes. Um, but in the immediate wake of the war, a lot of the South was, you know, occupied by the, the United States military, the Union military. Um, and millions of black men had suddenly gained the right to vote for the first time, like kind of right around that same period. And mm-hmm. historians generally call the, the time from 1865 to 1877 in the former South reconstruction. Construction. And it was a time of great hope for black Americans. Uh, 700 black men were elected to public office, including two senators and 14 members of the House of Representatives, which when you consider that like a huge chunk of those men had been slaves a couple of years earlier, like that's in that's maybe the the rapidest turnaround from not from politically being, you know, not a person to being in power that like has ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. 1300 black men and women were appointed to various government jobs during this period. Uh, freedmen yes. pooled their resources. They formed companies. Some of them fought to receive back wages and even t- tried to take land from their former masters. It was generally not successful, but attempts were made. And all across the South, groups of freedmen also formed militias, sometimes using the rifles with which they had served in the Union Army. And obviously, um, a lot of white folks weren't happy with this. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it worked. It's like, so they go, you know what? We're just going to let them. You forget that, especially in the South, the vast majority of the population were freed slaves. So just Mm -hmm. by the sheer numbers, if you let us vote, we're going to vote in our own people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's you're not going to be in charge anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's... Work uh, the numbers. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a pickle for um for the white supremacists. We 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 could say that fairly. Um yeah, and outside of the transition of slave patrols to police departments, a lot of white people just sort of on their own attempted to put newly freed black people in their place by using the law to to, you know, suppress them. Uh laws were passed throughout the old slave states that banned vagrancy or being out in public without a visible means of support. You mm-hmm. might recognize this as the same tactic used a little bit later to stop union workers from organizing in other parts of the country. Um mm-hmm. So that is kind of we can we we can see some sometimes the exact same tactic being used for very different groups of uh, of oppressed Americans. But it Come does on. it's the same thing. Like, what if we just make it illegal for them to be outside? <laughs> like, yeah. So um, in this case, vagrancy laws were used to force black people to take employment, generally a sharecropper. So you make it illegal to be outside without a job that forces people to take jobs. And since like you, you don't want to go to jail, your choice like you have to very quickly get whatever job you can get which means people you know the power is in the hands of the person offering you the job which means they could give you a job that's basically slavery which is in fact what a lot of sharecropping jobs exactly what sharecropping was (laughs) yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) um so again not quite slavery but also not nearly as far from being slavery as it really ought to have been slavery light yeah, slavery light. A little bit of diet slavery. It's like the Coke Zero of it's enslaving Zero. human beings. Yeah. Just one calorie. <laughs> yeah. It is better for you, but... <laughs> not like, very much better. Yeah, not very much better. Yes. Um, and it'll probably give you a brain tumor. Um <laughs> <laughs> So yes. I, I, I want to. Ki- I'll, I'll cut that bit out if Coke Zero wants to sponsor the podcast. I will so. take your money. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yes. So uh, I want to kick off our quotations <laughs> in this episode with one from the absolutely critical book that everybody ought to read: "The End of Policing" by Alex Vitali. 
Quote, Let's go. Anyone on the roads without proof of employment was quickly subjected to police action. Local police were the essential front door of the twin evils of convict leasing and prison farms. Local sheriffs would arrest free blacks on flimsy to non-existent evidence, then drive them into a cruel and inhuman justice system whose punishments often resulted in death. These same sheriffs and judges also received kickbacks and in some cases generated lists of fit and hardworking blacks to be incarcerated on behalf of employers, who would then lease them out to perform forced labor for profit. Douglas Blackmon chronicles the appalling conditions of mines and lumber camps where thousands perished. By the Jim Crow era, policing had become a central tool of maintaining racial inequality throughout the South, supplemented by ad hoc vigilantes such as the Ku Klux Klan, which often worked closely with and was populated by local police. Hmm. Good little summary of how hmm. that all went down. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So the motherfucking KKK. Um, the, let's come on. Get into yeah. it, baby. Now, we've done a whole two-parter on the history of the clan, the first and the second clan, at least, uh, on Behind yeah. the Bastards already. So if you want a detailed history of both of those organizations, you can check that out. It's in it's in the Behind the Bastards feed. But I'm going to give a little bit of an overview before we dig into the cop, you know, specific stuff. The KKK formed initially in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866. Uh, Pulaski. The very first Pulaski. That's like saying Pulaski. Pulaski, yeah. It's yeah. a fun yeah. name of a town. It's a shame. Yeah. All of the terrorism. Anyway. The very first KKK cell was formed by a bunch of bored, drunk, and pretty well-off Confederate veterans. They dressed up like wizards, and they gave themselves absurd titles and went out at night uh, costumed as the ghosts of Confederate veterans in order to scare freed black people. One of the KKK founders happened to own the local newspaper, and he published a bunch of mysterious letters from a grand cyclops, all of which made the Klan seem cool and mysterious and powerful. This early meme, and that's really what the KKK was at the start, spread very quickly Mm -hmm. throughout the south and soon thousands of white dudes were dressing like ghosts and terrorizing black people generally while drunk as all hell sometimes they wore dresses other times they pretended to be aliens they did this because it was fun but also because it made their abuse more impactful in her fantastic book ku klux elaine parsons explains this in a way that i think is really important when it comes to just sort of understanding modern right-wing street violence and why a lot of it seems so silly like a lot of the the ways they dress up and act are so yes on its surface absurd quote Ku Klux endeavored to portray victims entirely rational fear of their physical violence as though it were superstition or gullibility the victim tellingly failed to get the joke allowing himself to be frightened by ghosts or devils get the joke yeah they didn't get yeah. the joke it, it was hey, funny man, you don't I get dressed it, bro. as a ghost it's a and then joke. I shot at you yeah yeah <laughs> you so, didn't get while, the- while I'm hanging from my neck yeah you get it? Yeah. yeah. We hung you from a tree and we were dressed as aliens. Don't You don't get the joke? Ah, uh, you you're so it? scared of aliens. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There it is. Yeah. Fucking fascists Thanks. are always the Thanks, same. Thanks, bud. Yeah. What? Yeah. At some point, yeah. you have to explain to me in one of these bastard episodes why far right fascists are just not funny. Yeah. It's because- why is it just not funny? It's because comedy, um, good comedy, requires uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, empathy, right? Like there it you is. have to understand other people in order to say things that are funny to them. Um, there it is. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So okay. Anyway. Um, 
Yeah, many, if not most, of these early Klansmen were former Slave Patrol members, uh, and a sizable number of these early Klansmen, in addition to being former Slave Patrol members, were also current law enforcement, you know, sheriffs and the like. There was also, outside of, you know, even the Klan, just a huge amount of vigilante violence directed against black people during this time, and it all does sort of bleed together. One Edgefield County, South Carolina military officer, like a, a U.S. military officer stationed in the in the former Confederacy in 1866, wrote this, quote, Two men, white, had killed a Negro plus cut the ear off another the evening before, about five miles left of my encampment. It is presumed they belong to a regular organized band of guerrillas which infests that country. It is practiced among these monsters either to kill or mutilate any colored people who unluckily falls into their power. None of the colored people dared to sleep in their houses at night, but had to take refuge in the surrounding country. Some part of the peaceful, loyal white population are well acquainted with the haunts of these depredators, but dread them would they betray them, as there is no Mm. protection power in the country. They are a terror to the loyal population at night. These ruffians besotted with drink rave and tear like prairie Indians through the streets of the city. The civil law is powerless to protect against such desperados. That's interesting because it gives you an idea of how terrifying it was during this period, how these people acted. Yeah. It, it, it gives you also like a look into the head of sort of, I guess what you'd call like a white ally who was also still yeah. really racist against Native Americans. Like it's, Yeah, I was like, there's a, a lot really like a prairie Indian. Yeah, yeah. That's the what that is of all the whole sentence. That's what I caught where I was like, wait, what? It's like, ah, oh, you're, you're so, ah, uh, okay. What are we well, talking? Yeah, I was like, yeah, it's like the record skipped. Yeah. Where I was just like, yeah, man, yeah, man, yeah, man, hold up. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like you you want to be really proud of like Ulysses Simpson Grant because, you know, as flawed as he was, he beat the Confederacy. He was yeah. pretty committed to 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 black people not being slaves. He was committed to them having the right to vote. He did some really good stuff as president for black people. Real yeah. terrible record with the Native Americans. Just, like re, real just bad. abysmal <laughs> yeah, with yeah. the natives. Yeah. yeah. Um so you know, we have a, we do have a couple of, uh, of 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 founding members of this country that we can be comprehensively proud of, but they're pretty yeah. much just Thomas Paine, actually. When you just look at white folks, and 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 John Brown, yeah, <laughs> yeah, That's about um, it. Who, yeah, John Brown. There was a neat moment in his history where he was like asked by some white folks he lived around to help them clear out a group of Native Americans from the community, and he was like, "I'd rather clear your ass out of here." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good guy, John Brown. So, um, civil law was often powerless to stop these kind of bands of marauding white terrorists in this, or insurgents, really, in this period of time. Um, But civil law was also often on board with this kind of violence. So it was a mix of, we really have no resources to stop these people, and we also don't want to stop these people. Uh, And a good example of how this looked comes from the case of Union County, South Carolina. That town included a virulent cell of Klansmen, roughly organized Mm. around a local criminal named Bill Fawcett. Now, Fawcett had been a member of another anti-black guerrilla band known to Union troops as Slickers previously. He and his friends seemed to have slid rather seamlessly into becoming Klansmen once that was the hip new way to be racist terrorists. Fawcett was repeatedly arrested arrested for disorderly conduct and violence, but he had good connections to local law enforcement, and he and his friends were also tied heavily into the wealthy gentry in Union County, so they never really did any hard time because they were good smugglers, and they helped keep the rich people in the county well supplied with tax-free liquor. One of the wealthy men who supported Fawcett and his vigilante activities was James Rice Rogers. He sold the illegal liquor that Fawcett smuggled, and he was also the county sheriff in 1870, so that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Bring it right back around to the cops. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and again, we're seeing kind of the same thing we are seeing in like the big, you know, northern cities in this period of time where the police are intimately tied with vice. Yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so on the night of December 31st, 1870, Union County was struck by a series of violent raids. And th- this kind of originated from a clash between white and vi- black folks that's still very complex. It started mm-hmm. when two of Fawcett's men set out to deliver a barrel of illegal whiskey. And they were stopped on the road by a checkpoint of black mo- militiamen. And these guys were actually from two different black militias who had set up patrols in the area they lived because there were bands of armed Klansmen writing about. And those Klansmen had killed people recently. Um, okay. Not just black people, but also like white Republicans in this period. Yeah. Um, so they that'd like, be a mind bender for y'all. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. Like, <laughs> that they're, they're killing Republicans. Republican meant something different back then. Yeah, yeah, sure did. So um, there's these bands of you know armed Klansmen running around killing people, and so black folks set up militias to protect their neighborhoods, right? So they're doing mm-hmm. like armed community self defense, and this uh, this group of faucets, you know, men start driving up to one of these uh, one of these checkpoints with a barrel of illegal whiskey, um, and this militia holds faucets men up, and they demand they hand over the whiskey. Um, it's kind of unclear if they're just if they just want the whiskey because they're like, oh hey, right. let's get some whiskey, yeah, um, or if they're more like you guys are sketchy as hell. Um, you kind of seem like the clan dudes because these guys were both probably clansmen totally. who have been riding around and like we want to see what the hell is up and obviously these these white dudes di- weren't willing to like listen to what a bunch of black militia said and they ride off and so the black militiamen yeah. open fire at their wagon uh, and I'm going to mm-hmm. quote from historian Elaine Parsons here Perhaps it was important to the pickets or those who fired that white men not dismiss their armed demands and drive breezily by. Such pickets were part of how power operated in Union, and to mobilize the resources to set one up only to have it dismissed might have serious consequences. Perhaps the shots were not about the whiskey at all. There is some reason to suspect that Stevens, who's one of the men driving that whiskey train, uh, having passed through the organized group, would have headed straight to Fawcett, which might well have led to trouble not unlike that which was caused by shooting. So like they, they might have been worried that these people were going to like yeah. go back to the clan and try to organize uh-huh. an attack on the picket. And so, and trouble definitely followed, you know, them shooting at the wagon. Both of Fawcett's men immediately got out of the wagon and fled, but one of them was caught and he was executed by the militia. And his body was posed in a matter similar to how clansmen in the area had posed recently executed black men. Parsons continues, the black militia here was replicating the subculture of collective violence with which Union Countyans were familiar. Picketing a road to defend one of their own from attack was conventional Union County behavior, as probably was the shakedown of Stevens. Even shooting after the retreating figures of Stevens and Robinson as they ran their picket would perhaps not have been particularly abnormal in as gun-happy a culture as Union County's. The killing of Stevens made it a much more serious matter, of course. Militiamen, however, might have miscalibrated elites' willingness to support Fawcett's march men. Giving St- Stevens's liminal status, he was a, a criminal, had the militia been composed of white members, it seems likely that the whole affair would have blown over. Indeed, when Stevens's peer, Thomas Jefferson Greer, had been shot just months earlier, his assailant, who was another white guy, had enjoyed widespread public support. But again, John Sanders had been a white man. The fact that a black militia yeah. had killed a white guy was not okay to local white elites. And so large armed groups of white men formed up and started confiscating militia weapons from black homes, disarming them first. Here we go. Yeah. So, yeah. so like, they, I, I get a bunch of pushback from said, you know, uh, right-wing anarchists, boogaloo dudes who are, like, low-key boogaloo but don't want to admit it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, saying, like, 
I don't understand why black people don't arm themselves. Like you doing all this peaceful protest. Maybe you should like you yelling at us about being malicious coming out here heavily armed. Maybe y'all should start heavily being heavily armed as if we ain't never thought of that. <laughs> Do you know like, like I would, what yeah. makes you think we, that thought ain't crossed our mind yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, do you want me to go? You 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 did a thing on the Malford Act already. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We did that already. But like this, what year is this? What year are you talking about right now? Yeah, it's this. I'm a big. I'm a supporter of um of uh of of not just black people, but pe- members of marginalized groups, particularly as we continue to hurdle towards an uncertain future considering yeah. armed self-defense. Yes. But, like, yeah, that's been done a lot. And what? historically, yeah. there's a lot more armed white people. And so that's it's still like, it's not the solution. Yes. Yeah. It's not the solution. And yeah. like, why you think we ain't thought of that? Like, yeah. you think we ain't thought of that? Like, We're good. <laughs> This has been tried before. And and sometimes <laughs> it does work. We'll be we'll actually gonna be talking about this a few times in this episode. Yeah. It it's not like like again, I I I I'm one of the anarchists being like, consider it, you know? It's not yes. a bad idea. Yes, I'm not saying consider yeah. it, but these people talking yeah. to me as if we never thought yeah. about oh, it. Oh yeah. You know what I'm no, saying? From the right. fucking beginning. Yeah. From the beginning. What makes yeah. you think <laughs> like you come on, bruh? And yeah, what happens, you know, the, the the black people in Union County are organized and they are armed and white people start going door to door and taking guns out of individual yes. homes. Um, yes. And yeah. the reality of like, I, and I love the, the, the part of that passage that was like, this is not abnormal. Like yeah. what, what, what I wish I could run through all of the streets of America and explain is our cunt, American culture is violent. Like we are, all of your statues are war heroes. Yeah, we're founded on a protest. This is a violent culture, and our country, our power structures, they respond to violence. So I just don't like. I'm not telling you this is the right way. I'm just telling you this is the ocean you swimming in. You know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You, we are saltwater fishies. That's what we are. We are a violent culture. So you mad at somebody else who's who's experiencing violence, right? It, 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 like like it's incumbent on those experiencing violence to remain peaceful. Just it means like I don't think you want to you asking me to be a freshwater fish in a saltwater ocean. Like I just don't know what to tell you. The water is violent, so this is yeah. what's going to happen. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, so the white folks start taking all the guns of the yeah. of the black people who are in militias, um, yes. and they also arrest dozens of black men, many of men ha- whom had no ties to the militias. Now, some of these men attempted to resist, but uh, they ultimately decided that a gunfight would do them no good. Uh, yeah. They basically were like hold up in a house that was surrounded by white folks and they they had the choice do we defend ourselves or do we give ourselves up and kind of the decision was if we defend ourselves we will either kill or injure some of these white folks and they will be really angry when they finish killing us because there's a Yo. lot more of them and they're going to burn down every black house in the neighborhood right yeah like, that was there's that no was the, yeah they, they like white people at this time and yeah. even this and at yeah. that time and in this time but mostly yeah. at that time are the they're super kings of happy. elevation. You <laughs> yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you elevate the moment, like dial yeah. the heat up. You know what I'm saying? So these folks yeah. like give themselves up to save yeah, yeah. the neighborhood. Um, now, for several days, the white elites in Union County debated over this list of randomly arrested black men that they had and deciding yeah. basically we're trying to decide how many of them 
should can we punish and how many of them can we spare without provoking a broader race riot um, among like because, you know, th- there were like a chunk of folks in power who are like who understood like the, most of these arrests are bullshit. But also we have to punish some black people more or less at random. Otherwise, the poor white folks in the county are going yeah. to go on a race riot. So there's like yeah. this big debate with the, the local elites. And Alice Walker, the head of a local black militia, uh, gets mm. arrested on his way to travel to the governor to warn him about what's happening in Union County. Now, Walker hadn't been present at any of the events that had sparked this, but he was hated by the most racist of the local whites because he was the organizer of a black militia. So local law enforcement decided that his death would go really far in calming the white mob. Now, Walker had supporters who were ready to rally to his defense armed, but again, he told them not to. Um, He was innocent, and he was certain that a court case would bear out his innocence. But he never got the chance to actually, you know, do that. On January 5th, a huge gang of Ku Klux Klansmen raided the Union County Jail and abducted five arrested black men, who also happened to be prominent local Republicans. Parsons writes, quote, it is not possible to name any of the members of the costumed group, but because, though not all of the men were on horseback and were costumed, we can imagine that many of the group's members were elites. From the size of the group, even if we accept only a cautious estimate, it seems likely that they came from adjoining counties. There is a good deal of evidence that some of Fawcett's friends were present in a leadership role at this event. And one man who was later named by witnesses to the raid as a leader of the Klan mob that abducted all these black men was Fawcett's good buddy, Sheriff Rice Rogers. Um, so again, yeah, the sh- that's how they get into the jail yeah. is the sheriff is a Klansman and he lets the them sheriff the fuck lets in. Him in. Yeah. 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 And, you know, obviously what you're expecting happens to these black men and it's tragic. Totally. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's it, it's possible even that like so there was one of the things that did happen when the KKK showed up at this jail is they struggled with a deputy to get the keys. Um, and it's heavily suspected by historians, including Elaine Parsons, that this was all kind of an act um, and that it's likely that the deputy who struggled with the Klan after giving up the keys put on a Klan costume and engaged in the raid after yeah. being robbed. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could totally picture that. Hey, yeah. don't take my key. Don't take my key. Look, I'm doing the right thing. Wow. Yeah. And it is like a, again, so a lot. And this, this, this. I highlight this story because I think specific stories are kind of useful in in getting people emotionally involved. But this is one of this happened. We will never know how many times constantly Um, like the whole idea of a mob showing up at the jail and the officers handing over the keys or straight up just participating in the raid of the jail with Klan robes on was a constant story during this period. Um, Now, as a rule, local law enforcement either, again, helped actively. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? 
It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Or turn a blind eye to Klan violence out of fear. Uh, watching from Washington, D.C., President U.S. Grant was shocked by what seemed to be nothing so much as a resurgent Confederate movement in his, you know, in his country. Yeah. So when he'd come to power, Grant had believed that the passage of the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed black men the right to vote, would solve the problem of securing the rights of newly freed black people. He was taken by surprise by the vicious string of murders that followed black emancipation. In Chattanooga, yeah. Tennessee, a black man named Andrew Flowers defeated the white candidate for justice of the peace in an 1870 election. Despite the fact that this man had just been elected justice, police were nowhere in evidence while Klansmen whipped and beat him and told him that no N-word would hold office in the United States. Again, yeah. common story. Yeah. And thankfully, so, Flowers again, survived. Yeah. Again, hey, why don't you just put black people in office? You think we ain't thought of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You got to deal with the problem of mass violence being done to black people in support yeah. of white supremacy, not always by white people, but in support of white supremacy, because we'll yeah. talk next week about yeah how how having black officers in police departments works, because it doesn't always work the way you might suspect. No, like, because white supremacy, yeah, we talked about yeah. the first one, whiteness yeah. is a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
You know what isn't the Ku Klux? Oh Damn God, it. Jesus! No, that's you not a good it way might to do this. Be, though. That's the yeah, thing. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the hard part. Let's I, not analyze that too much with, right now. <laughs> let's just go with from episode one. Fuck the police! It's time for an ad break. Fuck the police products. The Black Effect Presents features honest conversations and exclusive interviews. A space for artists, everyday people, and listeners to amplify, elevate, and empower black voices with great conversations. Make sure to listen to the Black Effect Presents podcast on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Robert Sex Reese, host of the Dr. Sex Reese Show. And every episode, I listen to people talk about their sex and intimacy issues, and yes, I despise every minute of it. I yeah. mean, she, she made mistakes too, right? That's I mean, true. She, she did she, kill everyone at her wedding. But hell is real. We're all trapped here, and there's nothing any of us can do about it. So join me, won't you? Listen to the Dr. Sex Re Show every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to check out Drink Champs, your number one music podcast on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Hosts NORE and DJ EFN sat down with artist and icon Ye, which Vulture called one of 2021's most significant interviews. I literally had to go like Thanos, and I don't want to have to be the villain, but when I went and did the Donda thing, Ye returned. And everybody had to sit back and watch the real leader. Check out Drink Champs' conversation with Ye and many more legendary artists each and every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. We're back! Oh my gosh. You know what I love is being back from ads, because it means that we can talk more about the horrific history of racism and law enforcement. (laughs) The terror and trauma that sits inside (laughs) of my DNA and it's passed on generationally. Woo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should have had an air horn there. So uh, starting in 1870, um, President Grant began to lobby Congress to give him power to do something about the Klan. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, again, local law enforcement was actively aiding and abetting the KKK. Yeah. In 1870 and 1871, uh, Congress passed the Enforcement Acts. These protected the rights of black men to vote, hold office, and serve on juries, and generally enjoy equal protection under the law. The Ku Klux Klan Acts, as they came to be known, allowed President Grant to call up the army to or- in order to arrest and break up the bands of disguised night marauders. And we're going to be like 99% critical of law enforcement on this podcast, but we got to be fair when it's important to be fair. And federal yes. law enforcement did a pretty decent job on breaking up the Klan. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is this is where things get really complicated, prop, because a lot of the credit for this goes to Amos Ackerman, the Attorney General of the United States. Ackerman okay. joined the Republican Party after the Civil War and became one of the nation's most strenuous advocates for black suffrage. He was like, "Black people have the right to vote and hold office, and we will. I I will make sure we enforce this with fucking riflemen if we have to." Yes. Um, historian William S. McFeely said of Ackerman that, "quote No Attorney General before or." since has been more vigorous in the prosecution of cases designed to protect the lives and rights of black Americans. And here's where things get complicated because before he was a Republican, before he was the attorney general, Amos Ackerman volunteered and fought in the Confederate army. (laughs) People have layers (laughs) of complication. People are complicated. They in them contain (laughs) minis. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and this, if for Amos, this seems to have been like he was. It seems to have been more a matter of like you hear about these folks who are like really loyal to their state for reasons. Yeah. I have trouble understanding. Like he doesn't seem to have joined the Confederate Army specifically to fight for slavery, although he fought for slavery because that's what the Confederate yeah. Army fought for. But mm-hmm. in his mind, I think it was more like I'm really loyal to Georgia. I don't know. I can't get in the head of that guy, but I guess if you can make that up, he tried to afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I I want to give it to the possibility that people, uh, probably hundreds of them at the time. You know, like you said, just was like, look, we're down here. This is what we do. We fighting for our way of life. I guess that's right. And in the middle of that, finally had this like, you know, yeah. this is bullshit. You know what I'm saying? And was like, yeah. but if you the onlyest person for miles talking like this, it's probably hard to find some good community and you're probably going to fumble and then you become this guy to where you're like, Hey, there's one thing I can do. I could probably like dismantle this clan thing. That seems yeah. like a good thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If there's a thing that can make up for volunteering to serve in the Confederate Army, I guess it's dismantling the KKK. I guess. Like that, yeah. 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 Like that's a good. That's a good. It's a good, good place try to start. at least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the worst Klan violence was in South Carolina, and Grant declared martial law in that state, citing a condition of lawlessness. He suspended habeas corpus, uh, and numerous Klansmen were rounded up by federal authorities, including Sheriff Rice Rogers, uh, who we, we have been talking about. A lot of, lot of sheriffs got <laughs> pulled up in this. So the Senate <laughs> held extensive hearings where hundreds of black victims of the Klan were allowed to tell their stories to the nation. Under Ackerman's direction, 600 Klansmen were convicted and 65 of them sent to a federal penitentiary. By 1872, the Klan was no longer a meaningful force in the United States. Frederick Douglass himself said that without President Grant's actions, black Americans would have been trapped again in a condition almost identical to slavery. That is probably true, but it's also true that Grant kind of botched the landing on this one, firing Ackerman to appease his political rivals and commuting the sentences of some Klansmen in a bid for reconciliation. So again, can't stand here, you know, let's be fair. Um, Yeah. But also, you know, he, he it is fair to say that Ulysses Simpson, Simpson Grant was probably the best presidential advocate for black rights that existed until at least FDR. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. probably, probably not to the New Deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even, like, yeah. And even he got an asterisk next to his yeah, name. You know what a I'm couple saying? of yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, terrorism was, however, briefly out as a method of suppre- of repressing black Americans and enforcing white supremacy, or at least terrorism in kind of an organized fashion, because we're going to talk yeah. about lynching later. Um, this left the law and law enforcement as the last organized refuge for white supremacists. The black codes had been made illegal in 1868 when the 14th Amendment gave black people equal protection under the law. Um, but in 1877, the first Jim Crow laws began to be passed, mandating separate public spaces for black and white people. Suddenly, white and black people were now expected by law to use separate schools, libraries, water fountains, and restaurants. The police could no longer arrest black men for voting, although that absolutely still happened. But they could arrest black people for entering white spaces. The Klan was gone, but the police remained. And for decades, they took over the hard work of enforcing white supremacy from the terrorists. 
1915, William J. Simmons, former minister, performed a real act of resurrection and brought the KKK back to life. Now, Simmons had been a big nerd for things like the Masons and other fraternal societies that were a big part of life back in the day, clubs where men would gather and dress up in costumes and do silly rituals and generally get drunk. Simmons wanted to make a society of his own, and he decided that reviving the old KKK would be easiest because then he could cash in on the Klan's name recognition and branding. Again, I cover all this in that two-parter that we we already did on the show, but before we move on to the cop stuff, the important thing to know is that the second Klan was fucking huge. While the first had been a relatively small group of, of terrorists, the second Klan had its terrorists, but it was largely a social club that included millions of Americans at its height. They had a summer camp. Like, it was not quite the same thing. <laughs> Let they that sold, sink in, guys. Yeah. They sold <laughs> branded equipment and stuff. Like, And in a lot of ways, they were basically a pyramid scheme. Simmons engaged a PR firm to help him repackage this old terrorist group as a cool club for families. By 1920, the whole thing had gone viral nationwide, and the Klan did engage in pushing racist laws. But mm. for the folks at the top, I think more than even a force for racism, the Klan was a grift, right? Now, there mm. were a lot of racists in, like, everyone in the Klan was a racist still, and there were a yeah. lot of racists who were like the old Klansmen. Kind of at the top, making money was more the goal than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, Uh, In 1921, Simmons gave an interview to the Atlanta Journal that was basically his sales pitch to the nation for the Ku Klux Klan from a write-up in the National Museum of American History website. Quote, while explicitly advocating white supremacy, Simmons played up his group's commitment to law and order, promoted their enforcement of prohibition, and even boasted of his own police credentials. He claimed members at every level of law enforcement belonged to his organization, and that the local sheriff was often one of the first to join when the Klan came to a town. Ominously, Simmons declared that the sheriff of Fulton County knows where he can get 200 members of the Klan at a moment's call to suppress anything in the way of lawlessness. There it is. Yeah. And he wasn't blowing hot air when he said this. In Anaheim, California, Klansmen won four out of five seats on the city council, dominating local politics until 1924. They voted to allow officers who were Klan members to patrol wearing their full KKK uniform instead of their normal police uniform. Non-police Klansmen were also allowed to patrol and interrogate citizens in the streets. (laughs) Hey, I just want you guys to know that Anaheim's where Disneyland is, so just... (laughs) Just, just like let this, let that sink in. Anaheim, that's it, where Anaheim, Anaheim, that's where Disneyland is. You want to go to downtown yeah. Disney? It's Anaheim. Yeah, the, the city council of Anaheim, who are eighty percent Klansmen, are like, yeah, cops can just wear their Klan uniforms to do their job. Why I mean, not? It is, it's just a club. Right. Yeah, yeah, and the clan uniform basically is the same as the police uniform. So, like, we're good. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't yeah. understand the problem. Look, yeah, you know. This this is probably something for episode five, but just like when I think to myself, like how anyone can get their brain around, even at that time, after the law done changed, after you fought a war, I just think at the core, it's because you like black people are just, you're still just functional. You're still just a in the brain of of the white supremacist at, at the time and i think sometimes the stain of that's still here now where it's like you are you're an appliance black people are an appliance right so when you can make an appliance out of our entire bodies that's slavery right so and then you move that into mass incarceration to where you like okay and segregation and stuff like that like who wants to live in the house with their cows right because you're just and your washing machine doesn't have rights. It's just a washing machine, you know. So 
when you if you think of an entire person because of their color as just a function for yourself and it's not even just black people it's like even people that like if your argument against uh you know supporting immigrant rights especially immigrants of latin american you know people is like well well, who's going to pick our cotton or pick our strawberries? Who's going to pick? You still yeah. see these people as an appliance. You know what I'm saying? So when I got my 10,000 new followers that saying support black voices, I wanted to be like, yo, thank you for coming. Here's 10 other things I am. I'm a dad, <laughs> you know, I got daughters, I'm lactose intolerant, you know what I'm saying? I think butter's disgusting. It's because you still see me as an appliance. You know what I'm saying? So if 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 I'm just the if I'm just the the cow, if I'm just the function, so even if it's a function of you learning from me, I'm still just it's still just a utility. If it's a function of Y'all just supposed to pick our fields. You don't get rights. Y'all live over there. And I don't understand why the 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 damn refrigerator wants me to treat it like an equal. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you're just the refrigerator. Like, shut up. You know what, man? Here, we need to figure out something to make the damn cows and pigs understand that they just cows and pigs. Do you know what I'm saying? So... To me, it's like if if that's where your brain goes, damn, I went on a rant. But like <laughs> if that's where your brain goes, that's why it's so like mind-boggling to this to these clans people who's just like, I don't understand why these black people keep asking to sit at our tables. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, I mean, like, but like that that is sort of that's this is a really important thing to understand because Jim we usually talk about Jim Crow. Like white people usually talk about Jim Crow. I'm thinking back to like how I was taught about it. Like it was this terrible thing that happened that was done to black people, which it is. It was, yep. it was a crime. But also what Jim Crow was is the foundation of law enforcement. Law enforcement yeah. in this country was still very much in flux and being formalized when Jim Crow started. It was really yeah. fucking new. Like the yeah. or the first police department had only started in 1838. Jim Crow starts in 1877. So yeah. U.S. law enforcement in much if not most of this country is 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 – founded um, at this, like, more or less at the same time as Jim Crow, which means that U.S. law enforcement is founded in large part to keep the appliances in the eyes of of the white uh, uh, elite separated from the white elite. Like, that, that, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yes. Get back to the script. Important point. (laughs) Um, Yes. So, the second clan was also real popular in Oregon, maybe more popular in Oregon than it was anywhere else in the country. And patient zero for the Oregon clan was the southern town of Medford, uh, which is not Medford! <laughs> Medford! Which is in. Where you go watch in, Shakespeare in the park. Yeah. No, that's Ashland, which is My right bad. next that's to Medford. Ashland. Right. And, and okay. Me- Ashland is a, a, a very different city. Um, it is. Went but, to tea but house in Ashland. The, like, yeah, there's great tea houses. I, I love, yeah. I actually anyway. like. Like Medford and Ashland are both like right next to each other and both in one of the prettiest parts of Oregon and this one of the prettiest Gorgeous. places in the entire planet. Like I've been yes. all over the damn world. I haven't found anywhere. I found some places that are like up there with uh-huh. with that part of Oregon, but I haven't found yeah. anything that I find pretty like fucking gorgeous place. Yeah. But also Medford has a real long history of straight <laughs> up fascism right into the present day. Um, wow. The mayor of the town of Phoenix, I think it was Phoenix, which is like right outside of Medford, basically mm-hmm. a suburb of Medford. The mayor 
two or three days ago, drove his car into a crowd of Black Lives Matter protesters. The Again, mayor. The mayor. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the issues go continue. Yeah. I, Medford, wish that, I wish I could see my face right now. The <laughs> yeah. mayor. The mayor. Okay. <laughs> wow. So um, Medford is where Luther Powell, the Klegel sent by the National Klan uh, to establish the Klan in Oregon, uh, set up the state's first KKK outpost. He gained initial recruits by pointing to the massive bootlegging problem in nearby Jackson County and making the case that the Klan could help with law and order. And I'm going to quote now from a paper by Ben Bruce of Chapman University. Powell sold the Klan to potential followers not as a brotherhood of bigotry, but as a beacon of patriotism, cultural conservatism, and social order. According to Powell, the Klan was there to uphold traditional American society against the threat of the Roaring Twenties. Specifically, Powell emphasized the Klan's support for the enforcement of prohibition. In a matter of weeks, Powell had sworn over a hundred men into the Invisible Empire, most of who were policemen. Klan expert and author David Chalmers describes the Klan under Powell as being in the law and order business. Luther Powell's recruiting success in Medford cannot be quantified by lists of names on paper on membership dues alone. With his newfound support from local police officers, Powell accused Medford County of insufficient prohibition enforcement policies. He then spearheaded the successful recall of the county sheriff. Within a month, the mayor of Medford was dressed in white robes as well. So... Medford again this is and this Thanks, happens I, we're talking about Anaheim and Medford and like we'll yeah. talk about a couple other cities but this is happening all over the US we're like whole yeah. city governments and the whole police departments are like yeah what if we're just Klansmen too this is fine <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah pa- Powell's success perfectly embodies what made the second Klan much more successful than the first. The first KKK was literally a an insurgent terrorist army. The new KKK uh-huh. positioned itself as a force for law and order, standing alongside the state in order to help keep white people oh. safe. Um, it was a it, it was again not a vigilante like terrorist organization, but instead the same kind of designated vigilante force. If you remember that from Mm -hmm. our first couple of episodes, a designated vigilante force like the police. And Mm. that's why it was often like a lot of local clan cells were majority police officers. So, Powell moved on quickly from Medford to Portland, as most people who visit Medford tend to do. Within months, the city had thousands of Klansmen, and it may have garnered more KKK members more quickly than any other city. Now, (laughs) again, this rapid success in Portland came in part from the fact that the Klan was seen as respectable. Shortly after Mm. opening, the Portland Klan chapter partnered openly with the Portland Police Bureau. Since the Portland Police Bureau only had 150 men at this point, it considered itself understaffed, and the mayor of Portland decided to appoint a vigilante police auxiliary, and he allowed the KKK to pick the members. These men received police powers and firearms, but their names were kept hidden, effectively turning themselves into a secret police force. I should note here that during the recent protests in Portland, a commander of the Portland police force sent out a directive uh, ordering police officers to cover up their names and replace them with numbers that could only be traced back to names internally. Um, Just a fun little thing. Portland Police Bureau. Same force that partnered openly with the Klan. (laughs) Cool stuff. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Portland, where there's... (laughs) We're on, <laughs> we're on Burnside in MLK. You can go to a park of just food trucks, mm-hmm. and you can get yeah craft like vegan waffles. Mm-hmm. That's 
in Portland. Yeah. And the cops are clan members. Like, and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Help me. <laughs> Help I've me heard a lot of you, Portland. I've heard a lot of cops and clan go hand in hand chants in port in the Portland streets recently. Yeah, and I, I obviously a lot of people believe that, but I don't know if those people know that literally the Portland Police Bureau had an official arrangement with the KKK <laughs> I, I in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, just think it rhymes. Yeah, like, no, no, yeah. seriously. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, no, yeah. you're literally correct <laughs> in a very direct way, not just Jeez. in a these guys are secretly clan members but no 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 like the ppb had an arrangement yeah cool stuff so astoria oregon also had a major clan problem uh and this is because it was the most diverse city in the state which meant at this point didn't mean that it was the most the least lowest number of white people it meant that it had like basically it had the most the highest number of catholic people who came from weird parts of europe like right (laughs) that and again the second clan in this period, Diverse. some historians will argue, was actually more racist and violent against Catholics and Jewish people, or at least as racist uh, and violent wow. as it was to black people. Like, this is, it is like, yeah. they've broadened their their spate of hatred. Yeah. Um, and obviously it found a healthy... The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Base of resentful Protestant white people in Astoria. Klan leaders brought in anti-Catholic speakers to rile up the public, and they rallied themselves around enforcing vice laws that the police had not handled to their satisfaction. Primarily, they went after prohibition violators and prostitutes. On June 17th, 1922, the Klan sent both local newspapers and the sheriff a letter demanding that he take action against the Whistle Inn, the heart of a local bootlegging operation. Two weeks before the letter, two people had died in a drunken accident after leaving the Whistle Inn. The Klan letter to the sheriff threatened to take care of the problem if he failed to do so. On June 19th, the KKK sent 50 men into the Whistle Inn. They were met by sheriff's deputies, who'd been called, ironically, by the bootleggers inside. The sheriff arrested both men, and the whole incident became something of a local scandal. The Klan used it to petition for a recall election, which they again succeeded in getting. Their candidate won the recall election, giving them control of Astoria's sheriff's department, and soon after, they swept local government elections, too. Variations of this story repeated themselves all over Oregon, and the Klan was eventually successful in electing their own candidate for governor. Walter M. Pierce. Uh, his regime passed the Oregon Compulsory School Bill, which required all children from 8 to 15 to attend public school. That sounds innocuous enough on the surface, but the purpose of the bill was to destroy all Catholic schools because those were not public. And again, the KKK really hates Catholics. And definitely the Oregon Klan is more anti-Catholic than it is anti-black, but only because uh-huh. there's not a whole lot of black people in Oregon, right? Yeah, it wasn't nobody like, yeah, 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 yeah. It was like It's like 95% white people at this point. So that's why the KKK is so focused on Although they also focus a lot on uh, Japanese and Chinese immigrants and like this governor that they elect pushes a bill to basically make it impossible to move to Oregon or work in Oregon yeah. as an Asian person. And, you know, the both the anti-compulsory bill and the 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 anti-Asians bills like those get struck down. Um, yeah. And this governor who is backed by the Klan winds up kind of turning on the Klan, not because he's a good guy, but because um he doesn't he thinks that after he gets elected he doesn't really feel loyal to the clan anymore yeah like so anyway it's a complicated yeah. story but yeah so yeah is the clan i'm just like man like y'all sometimes i feel like when i the more i learn about them i'm just like man y'all are all over the place yeah like how, where i just sometimes i can't even draw the i can't even connect the dots of their hatred like how like how are how are we talking about Jews right now? Like where it's like, when did we get to that? You know, or I just, I can imagine, I, I would love to see a skit where somebody's trying to complain where where uh, some new kids in the back of the room at the Klan meeting and can't keep up with like, mm-hmm. wait, we're talking about Catholics now? What? What? Yeah. What'd they do? Wait, what? what's the problem? You know what I'm saying? Like, just like, I can't even, I. this is a complete tangent, but I'm just like, yeah, just, I can't keep up, man. I'm like, y'all all over just dang man at least be consistent yeah 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 um head break oh yeah we should that was smooth thank you yeah here's have a have a handful of products buckaroos after 30 years it's time to return to the halls of west beverly high and hang out at the peach pit on the podcast 9021 OMG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind the scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 Super 
superfan and radio host, Sissini, sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment from Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting, Donna Martin graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show. And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> Listen to 9021OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Sam, host of the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood. This daily podcast will help give you the keys to the kingdom of financial stability, wealth, and abundance. With celebrity guests like Rick Ross, Amanda Seals, Angela Yee, Roland Martin, J.B. Smooth, and Terrell Owens, tune in to learn how to turn liabilities into assets and make your money move. Subscribe to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenland on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you leave a review. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia, Kidding, and Asia. This is The Professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. We're we back. have returned. And we're talking still about the Oregon clan. So the Oregon KKK success in uh, local and state politics gave them the legitimacy they needed to feel comfortable carrying out acts of violence. On April 11th, 1922, a 22-year-old Latino man named Sam Johnson was grabbed in the middle of the night by a group of robed Klansmen. They dragged him into the forest and they hung him from a tree, quote, not long enough to kill him, but sufficiently long to give him a glance into eternity according to a local paper. While he lay on the ground recovering, the mob told him that he had to leave town or they would come back and kill him. This semi-lynching was again reported on in the local paper, but no arrests were made. The county sheriff, who was almost certainly one of the men who abducted Sam, called him a bad actor who just hadn't done anything serious enough to get arrested. So, yeah, he doesn't have a criminal record, but he was, we decided he was a criminal, so it's fine to hang him from a He got it on him, though. I could see it. Yeah. Yeah. The sheriff accused him of bootlegging without any evidence and washed his hands of the case. On March 18th, a Catholic piano salesman named J.F. Hale was assaulted in the same way, taken at gunpoint into the woods and then hung almost to death. This time, the demand was made that Hale drop a lawsuit against another Medford man for an unpaid debt and that he also leave town. The sheriff said the kidnapping, too, was of no local interest. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which, yeah. It, it's also worth noting that um, there was a recent, uh, well, last year, uh, a, a trans black woman who was murdered in the city of Portland, um, yeah. and the death was written off, well, who died in the city of Portland. The police ruled it a suicide. There's a lot that's shady about it. The family has asked for it to be investigated, and the police said that investigating it uh, further was not of local interest. Um, so that's cool. That's a cool thing. That yeah. Again, got to point out how this never stopped and has never really even slowed down in a lot Good of ways. Good Lord. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. this This is this playbook <laughs> has so never failed up. these fools. You it's know what I'm saying? so fucked up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On April 2nd, a black railroad worker who'd just been released from jail over prohibition violation was kidnapped, hung again, and ordered to flee the town. As he ran away, he heard men shouting back at him, Can you run, inward, while some in the crowd fired at his feet with their revolvers. 
By this point, local media had begun covering the Klan's abductions in outraged articles. One in the Medford Mail Tribune revealed that the state Klan leadership had actually sent notes to individual members within the county with instructions on how to carry out these necktie attacks. The Klan denied these letters since they had not been sent on official Klan letterhead. (laughs) What? Again, they had a lot of products. The yeah. Klan had a lot of products and services actually this, in this period. This yeah. don't count because it wasn't no letterhead. They show they sold insurance. Yeah. This is incredible. So Klegel H. E. Griffith, who was the guy who had taken over the, the Medford can, clan, demanded can, can you name his can you say his uh his title again? Just Klegel. Just Klegel. Klegel. Just... I heard something okay, now else. Go on. I heard I know, something I else. What? Yeah. I'm just yeah, exercises that women do to keep going. Oh, yes, 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 it does sound like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, so H.E. Griffith Thank deci- you for demanded- Thank that, though, like, Prob. Thank you. Hey, girl, dad. You know there what I'm saying? There you go. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, the Medford Mail yeah. Tribune, like, writes a letter about how the Klan is very obviously behind all this. And the guy in charge of the Medford Klan demands to the, that the newspaper give him a chance to respond. And the Medford Mail Tribune lets him release a statement through the paper denying any role in the semi-lynchings. Gotta, gotta tell both sides of the story. <laughs> um, ben Bruce writes, quote, Klegel H.E. Griffith gave an official statement denying any prior knowledge of the aforementioned events as well as the Klan's alleged involvement. Griffith accused the local papers of severely misrepresenting the facts. In the same article, Griffith endorsed the Klan as a regular, fraternal, patriotic, and benevolent order that stands for pure Americanism, protection of pure womanhood, free speech and press, free public schools, restricted immigration, white supremacy, and law and order, and consistently assists all law officers in the performance of their duties. Um, yeah. That's cool. There Surprisingly, the people of Medford did not believe these denials, or at least enough of them <laughs> didn't, that public outrage did force a trial, which occurred mm. nearly a year later. 19 Klansmen right. were charged with participating in the necktie parties as they came to be known. One of the men was the former police chief of Medford. <laughs> Good Lord. The main witness was J.F. Hale, the piano salesman, but the state decided he was not a reputable citizen, largely because his son had been born out of wedlock. <laughs> it is the 20s. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. Wow. Uh, it's it's uh, okay. fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. All charges okay. against the Klansmen were dropped. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you remember that? You remember last year that at that... um. That uh, uh, anti-abortion protest where that little boy was like eye to eye with that Native American man, and like the the whole picture went. You oh know, boy, viral. howdy! Yeah, you remember that, that? Fucking thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this that Christ. what you're just explaining explains in a lot of ways why everybody looked at that moment and saw two different things because the what what. The terror that a lot of us are talking about, like why this was so frustrating, was because the the ambiguity of this kid's face of just being like he is just a kid, he is kind of smirking, right? Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, he didn't do anything, he didn't interrupt the guy, he's just standing there looking at him. But if they're at his own protest, it's fine. But when you hear stories like this, what? And I can't say because I'm not in that kid's head, and I wasn't there. I'm just saying when I look at it. I see the history you're explaining. The idea that you that these boys can function without any impute. Imp, what's the word I'm looking for? Impute, punitive, imp, their impunity. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. But the point yeah. is, 
they not finna get in trouble. That's what I'm trying to say, right? So you can always lean back and be like, what? I didn't do anything. So, and I just remembered how many times in my own life, recognizing that smirk, knowing that yeah. no matter what this kid did, did, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how much evidence I have, he will not be punished. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's the like, so whether I know what this kid was thinking or not, it's like, this is what America saw. There was two Americas. Um, one, um, one side of America saw this kid has, this kid's gonna, there's no matter what, he's not going to get in trouble. Nope. You know and this is this is why yeah. when we finally do reform law enforcement, you know, uh, uh, d- disband the police and replace it with something better. One yeah. of the federal agencies we need is a is a federal branch that is just a groups of people who go door to door and just give people one solid punch in the face when they really deserve it. When they like man. they don't we shouldn't be sending them to prison. They didn't do a prison thing. Yeah. But like you were a dick and now you're going to get hit in the face. You and, like, just need. Yeah. Yeah. A good slapping. Yeah, What's, yeah. Somebody needs to just smack you in that? the damn face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's backfengeschickt, which is like a face in need of a fist. Is the That's, is the direct translation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes people just need to get like not hard, not enough to do damage. Like we'll train these people to deliver yes. like legally appropriate slaps and punches. But like you were a, a dick, and somebody needs to fucking smack you. And like it should be a group of of, of men and women in suits who come to your door and say like. You yes. have been selected to get smacked in the face because you were yes. a dick and you need to know it. That's yes. my suggestion. Um, it's not a bad one. Yeah. So Oregon's clan was relatively nonviolent. And I, I, I again, this tells you how bad the second clan was. We're calling like lynchings that don't kill anybody relatively nonviolent compared Sheesh. to the clan in Oklahoma, for example, had a horrifically yeah. violent clan that also oh, eventually gosh. wound up in charge of, of most, a lot of the, the different state uh, or, or like local cities and departments, police departments and stuff. Um, and it was also comparatively nonviolent when you sort of put it against the clan in Indiana, for example, there in Indiana, the KKK was successful in infiltrating a local civilian law enforcement agency, the horse mm. thief detective, Detective Association. Now, this odd group got its start in the 1840s, and its members were basically licensed vigilantes with the right to protect property via violence. And as you can guess by the name, they started to, to prosecute horse thieves, right? Yes. Law enforcement can't catch all these horse thieves. We'll deputize civilians. We'll give them the right to, like, arrest and fuck up people to stop horse thievery. But they also had kind of broader rights to enforce laws. Um mm-hmm. Now, the birth of the automobile reduced the Horse Thief Detective Association to a somewhat irrelevant group. But when the KKK came to Indiana in the early 1920s, they saw that, like, there was this organization that civilians who were Klansmen could join, and it would give them the right to carry out violence with state backing. So they start flooding the HDTA with membership, and they also start giving existing members in the HDTA free and subsidized membership in the KKK. um, Because they see that, like, this weird little organization gives them the right to enforce the law in Indiana without like having to get elected sheriff or anything or, or put, yeah. you know, even recruit police officers. So the Indiana clan starts pouring money into the HDTA and offering their existing members low priced entry into the clan. Quote, 
As sworn members of HDTA chapters, Klansmen in the state essentially formed an armed, officially sanctioned force that would allow them to enact their agenda under the guise of legitimate law enforcement. Now, in his work uh, on the Klan in Indiana, historian Leonard J. Moore details membership records from 1925 that show that over 20% of the state's eligible population, white Protestant native-born males, belonged to the KKK. In some counties, that number exceeded 33%. In Marion County, which included the city of Indianapolis, over a quarter of eligible men belonged to the Ku Klux Klan, some 25,000 members in total, many of whom held dual membership in the HDTA chapter. Okay, wait. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, they paid dues. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it was a for-profit endeavor. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Which I forgot how lame that even makes it even more lame. Yeah. They're like they're y'all a lot- paid. Y'all paid. Yeah. Y'all paid to be in here. Hmm. Well, so yep. lame. It's anyway. pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm going to quote again from a uh, uh, historian, Leonard J. Moore. Quote. Okay. Uh, as horse thief detectives, the Indiana Klan came down on bootleggers, organized labor, immigrants, and African-American populations. In one incident related in Elliot Jaspin's book, Buried in the Bitter Waters, they helped expel black citizens from the mining town of Blandford in western Indiana. On January 18, 1923, a young girl from Blandford reported that she had been abducted and assaulted by an African-American man. Within 48 hours, several hundred white townsfolk met and demanded that all black residents leave, beginning with unmarried men who were to be outside town limits by that evening. Within a week, all black residents of Blandford, approximately 50 people, had fled. That exodus was overseen by Harry Newland, the sheriff of Vermilion County and himself a Klansman, along with members of the Dana HDTA and the Helt Township HDTA, two of the four chapters in the area. The Helt Township chapter alone included over a dozen members of the Klan, including its captain. African-American citizens, both in Blandford and the surrounding county, felt forced to comply and departed en masse. As Jaspin notes, the 1920 census recorded well over 200 black residents in Vermilion County. In 1930, that number was less than 70. Wow. That's an act of eth- of ethnic cleansing. That's, that's what a, we that's call ethnic, ethnic cleansing. Yeah, that's what that's called. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Indiana, the KKK, Indiana, y'all. <laughs> the KKK was active all throughout. And again, think about this. Think about this civilian group with law enforcement powers enforcing white supremacy. When you think about, for example, armed members of far right militias showing up to support the police at protests. Um, yes. Yeah. That's. So the KKK was active all throughout the United States during this period, eventually reaching a peak of like four million members. There exists no accurate nationwide count for how many people were forced out of their homes by the Klan, how many were assaulted by them or killed by them, just as there exists no comprehensive accounting for how often this behavior occurred either with the consent or the enthusiastic help of the police. In either case, it may be a mistake to even attempt to quantify the KKK's part in this specifically, because the violence of both the first and second Klan occurred within a much broader context of mass violence against black people by white people with the express consent of law enforcement. This violence started up during Reconstruction and continued all the way into 1950. We tend to call it lynching today, although it took a variety of forms, and we will never know how many black men were killed during this period, but the Equal Justice Initiative estimates 6,500 at the minimum. These murders occurred at a steady pace, with intermittent eruptions that were spurred on by a mix of economic recessions, war, and white resentment of black success. And all that brings me to the story of the Red Summer of 1919. Have you heard mm. of this prop? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to guess, I think because of the show Watchmen, actually, a lot more yes. white people know about Tulsa now, which we'll be talking yes. about in part two. I don't yes. think very many. I didn't know about fucking Red Summer until like a yeah. week or two ago. So, it's yeah. part yeah. four. 
part four, Jesus. Part four for the week. Part two for the week. Okay, well, oh, okay. Yeah. The Got next it. episode, we will talk about Tulsa. We'll talk this about episode, Tulsa. This is, uh, yeah. Yeah, Red, Red Summer, Summer 1919. Yeah. Again, this is the type of stuff that, like, yeah. like I said before, if it's not in your experience, yeah. you, you'd you have to go out of your way to know this. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, But if it is, it's like, this is why I will always hammer, like, you know, having a good, strong sense of self, a sense of community, and then having relationships across communities. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that now you don't sound like an asshole when you don't know what the fuck you're talking about because you don't know people from other places. You know yep. what I'm saying? So this is, so, so yeah. So anyway, all that to say. And this shit won't be in your textbooks. No. And it's not going to be. It's not no. going to be. Anything. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. You might, you're lucky if you get a paragraph on the Red Summer in a in a textbook, and not all textbooks. Yeah. Mine sure didn't have it. It is of in course. some textbooks um, because yeah. some of the articles I read on it, like, were specifically analyzing how it's covered in textbooks. But again, yeah. generally about a paragraph. Yeah. Now, the Red Summer is the name given by NAACP leader James Weldon Johnson for the months in 1919 when a wa- wave of racist riots yeah. – race riots is often the term. I think racist riots is is more accurate yeah. – broke out against black communities in Charleston, South Carolina, Longview, yeah. Texas, Bisbee, Arizona, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Knoxville, Omaha, and Elaine, Arkansas. At least 150 people were killed in the violence and 100 or so more lynched, but it's probably more like 1,000 dead. You'll, you'll hear again. We don't. Yeah. We're not gonna. We're never gonna get a good accounting. Um, and I hope the listeners hear, like, as he gets into this story again, just like we said, you know, to the militia folk that are like, "How come black people don't arm?" And yeah. when we say, "You think we ain't thought of that?" Yeah. Right? Now, when you read, as you listen to this story, when people say, "Well, how come you don't build your own businesses and support your own community and start your own capitalistic spaces?" Let me say, "You think we ain't thought of that?" <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Continue. Yeah. Um, So, uh, obviously, you know, Klan members were involved with and behind a great deal of the violence of Red Summer, but not not necessarily most of it. Uh, Although in Pittsburgh, the KKK chapter posted up notices around a black neighborhood which stated, the war is over, Negroes. Stay in your place. If you don't, we'll put you there. Um, which is a hmm. little ironic because a lot of Red Summer involved white crowds going into black neighbors. Coming to, coming to black neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Minding our own business. Fucking A. Yeah. So, <laughs> while Klansmen were regular drivers of violence during Red Summer, uniformed police officers played at least as large a role, maybe even a larger one. One of the first riots started in Chicago on July 27th after a black child mistakenly swam into a chunk of beach that was whites only under Jim Crow. White people on the beach saw this child, Eugene Williams, and started pelting him with rocks. Every time he would attempt to come to shore, they would throw more rocks at him. He eventually drowned. This brought a cloud, crowd of furious black citizens out. More rocks were thrown. A white officer showed up, observed the situation, and decided to arrest a black guy. Yeah. This, <laughs> for obvious reasons, helped push tensions in Chicago to a boiling point. The resulting riot led to 38 mostly black deaths, and the police responded with a mix of complete ne- neglect, often allowing the white mobs to do violence, and occasional acts of giving a shit, possibly due to the presence of black men on the Chicago PD. The most yeah. example, notable example of this was probably the Chicago police holding back a white mob from burning down a hospital filled with mostly black patients. The only CPD officer to die during the riot was a black man. 
Red Summer actually continued into the fall, and one of its bloodiest hotspots was Phillips County, Arkansas. On September 30th, a small group of black people gathered at a rural church to organize a sharecropper's union. Two police, white policemen showed up, and they had been sent there specifically to stop the union from organizing. So again, yeah. we do have some interchange with what we there talked we about in the last episode, where the police yep. exist to stop unions for wealthy people. Anyway, um, so they claimed they were looking for a bootlegger, uh, and what happened next is unclear, but a gunfight broke out, and one officer was killed almost certainly in self-defense by the people in that meeting. The local sheriff sent out a call for armed random white dudes to, quote, hunt Mr. N-word, and he did not use the N-word. Uh, I mean, he used the N-word, but he didn't, you know, he used the real one. Uh, hunt it. Mr. N-word in his lair. Hundreds of white dudes from all over the area and even from the, the adjoining state of Mississippi showed up in Phillips County with guns. They opened fire wildly at every black person they saw with the enthusiastic consent and help of the police. Frank Moore, a black farmer, survived the massacre. He later recalled, The whites sent word that they was coming down here to kill every inward they found. There were 300 or 400 or more white men with guns shooting and killing women and children. Now, of course, Klansmen were involved, and some of those Klansmen were likely police officers. But the violence in Phillips County was backed by state and local officials, lawmen and business owners, not just a vigilante social club. The official death toll was 11 black men and five white men killed. The real number of murdered black people is believed to range from anywhere from 100 to 237. At one point, the white mobs were aided by federal troops as well. Local reporters helped the government cover up the massacre by claiming the violence had been white self-defense against a black uprising. One Arkansas Gazette article opened with the headline, Negroes plan to kill all whites. <laughs> ah, Lord. Yeah. You could just make it up. And yo, like going into like some of these specific communities. Yeah. Just to color, just to color some of the story, we're becoming affluent, especially yeah. the ones in South Carolina. They were yeah. like, "Okay, listen, you don't want to do business with us, fine." So we were selling. They was opening banks, selling their own homes, starting their own businesses, growing their own crops. Yeah. It was like, "Okay, it's fine, fine. We don't have to live together. It's fine." You know what I'm saying? And then all of the sudden, somebody just come knocking down. It's like, what do you? And you know, specifically oh, we- sparked by. That community, sharecroppers of the community being like, we need to agitate together to have a, a better deal in a yes. legal and constitutionally protected way. Oh, now you're shooting at us. Now now yes. you're shooting at us. You're just like, <laughs> you're like, okay, wait, okay, so we're not three-fifths human anymore. The law yeah. applies to us. It seems like this system of sharecropping don't work. Maybe we should work together and kind of figure out a better mm. way to, I mean, I mean, we, we, we're citizens now. Mm. Yeah, so. we have this right. Yeah. We have this right. Oh, guess we don't. Nope, nope. You're yeah. shooting us. Okay. Yeah. I that, mean, this, the, this it, is just like the, oh, I was in fear of my life bullshit yeah. that cops it, use yes. totally every is. second yeah. of yes. every day. They were uprising. You'll hear that they again were, in the next episode, too. Yeah. yeah. No, and it does, they were minding their own business. I was afraid of succeeding. the woman sleeping in her own house. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's uh, you know. I'm not a big Chairman Mao fan, um, but when he said political power comes from the barrel of a gun, he was not incorrect. Like, no. and that's what you see here, right? Yes. Right. That's what that's yeah. what Red Summer is. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And I, I recognize things are getting a little bit muddled here in this podcast about the history of the police vis-a-vis the difference between the vigilante violence, the KKK violence, the police violence, the police violence that is KKK violence. And that's because very real history is always muddled. And yes. in this period, police were often perpetrators in lynchings and white mob violence against black people. They also more often failed to intervene in this sort of thing. Yeah. And they did sometimes fight against it, um, yeah. often because there were black officers on the force. But there were in this period, it is important to note, some very brave white officers who were like, this totally. isn't fucking OK. I'm, I, I'm not trying to erase those people. But nationwide, as a whole, police completely failed to defend black citizens in any organized, meaningful yes. way during the Red Summer of 1919. White people initiated more or less 100% of the violence during the summer, and law enforcement yeah. consistently failed to protect them. In Washington, D.C., while white mobs marched through black neighborhoods firing wildly, the police response was so lackluster that the mayor was had to call in the military in order to protect the city's black citizens. The individual racism of white officers mixed with the simple reality that police had never been intended to protect poor neighborhoods or businesses in an organized fashion left black people with no option but to protect themselves. And yeah. to tell that story in brief, I'm going to quote from an article in Teen Vogue by Ursula Wolf Rocca. Quote, In Knoxville, Tennessee, armed black men organized themselves to successfully repel hundreds of white rioters that, who had already destroyed the county jail with a battering ram and dynamite. In Chicago, African Americans formed self-defense units after days of white terror in their neighborhoods. Many of these defenders were veterans, among the 370,000 black men inducted into the army during World War I, who hoped fighting for democracy abroad might finally secure their first-class citizenship at home. The mob violence in Chicago convinced Harry Haywood, a veteran of the all-black 370th Infantry Regiment, he'd made a mistake. As he explained, I had been fighting the wrong war. The Germans weren't the enemy. The enemy was right is. here at home. There In Washington, D- yeah. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. The, the, the muddle is the, yeah. I love that you said muddled because yeah. that's the point. Yeah. That's the point we're trying to make when it comes to policing in America. It is muddled. I, mm. I can't, I should be able to tell the difference. Yeah. I should be able to go, that is the Klan, these are the police. I should be. Yeah. And that's our point. I can't tell the difference. That's the point. Yep. Yep. Uh, I'm yep. going to continue that quote um, yep. about black self-defense during Red Summer. In Washington, D.C., 17-year-old Carrie Johnson opened fire on men breaking into her home while a thousand white rioters laid siege to her neighborhood. In Anniston, Alabama, in December of 1918, a black veteran, Sergeant Edgar Caldwell, was ordered out of the white section of a streetcar. He refused. Kicked out of the car and set upon by a, the white motorman and conductor, Caldwell shot his pistol twice, killing one of his attackers. Though uncoordinated, when looked at together, these hundreds of moments in and leading up to 1919 read as an awesome display of collective black agency and self-preservation so again black armed self-defense often is overwhelmed by again the sheer number of white people their additional resources their backing of the state but it also works out sometimes and it saves a lot of lives when it does so we, we i don't want to be saying like it's not a, a tactic that yeah. succeeds it historically yeah. has yes. um in 2016, city councilwoman Angelia Williams took to the stage at an NAACP luncheon. She told the crowd that modern racists had, quote, 
taken off their white hats and white sheeted robes and put on police uniforms. Some of them Mm. have put on shirts and ties as policymakers, and some of them have put on robes as judges. This did not go over well, and she was roundly pilloried by law enforcement officials, a lot of whom were like Democrats, and a wide variety of elected local Democrats. Um, But if Councilwoman Williams had wanted to bring up recent cases of folks who worked forces and also burnt crosses, she would not have had to Google hard. In 2012, a Little Rock, Arkansas officer who'd attended at least one KKK meeting shot and killed a 15-year-old black child. In 2015, video leaked of Anniston, Alabama police officer Joshua Dogrell delivering a speech for the League of the South. Now, the League of the South is a neo-Confederate organization, and for all intents and purposes, just a dressed-up rebranding of the KKK that tries to look a little bit more palatable. These motherfuckers marched with the Nazis in Charlottesville in 2017. Dogrell had joined the League in 1995. He'd been a police officer since 2006. He talked openly about the League of the South to his fellow officers. He advised them to join, and he held meetings at a steakhouse very close to the police station. He posted pro-Confederate content on his Facebook, including pictures of early KKK leaders. Dogrell's clan affiliations were doubly concerning, given Aniston's history. In May of 1961, the Freedom Riders had shown up in town to protest against segregation and Jim Crow. They were mm-hmm. assaulted by a mass of Klansmen, who slashed their tires, broke their bus windows, and tried to light the bus on fire with them in it. The Aniston Police Department was headquartered a block away from this, a little closer than the steakhouse where Officer Dogrell would decades later hold meetings. Yeah. Aniston officers failed to arrive at the scene of the crime until hours later. No one was arrested. They may have been late because a number of them probably had to change out of their robes and into their uniforms. <laughs> because they were there. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. they were trying to burn the bus down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now, I cannot point uh, you to any specific act of racial violence that Officer Dogrell committed while in uniform, uh, as it is damnably hard to get good information on police misbehavior from the very best police departments. And Aniston is not one of those. But significant evidence suggests that Officer Dogrell and his membership in what is a, a, a Confederate organization uh, is not a one off. From an yeah. article in The Guardian, quote, Although it is unusual to be for a police officer to be so open about his involvement in an extremist organization, for decades, anti-government white supremacist groups have been attempting to recruit police officers into their ranks. It is something a lot of folks are overlooking, says Vita B. Johnson, an assistant professor of law at Georgetown University. Police forces are becoming more interested in talking about implicit bias, the unconscious racial biases we carry with us as Americans, but people aren't really addressing the explicit biases that are present on police forces. <laughs> According to Johnson's research, there have been at least 100 different scandals in more than 40 different states involving police officers who have sent racist emails and text messages or made racist comments on social media since the 1990s. A recent investigation by the Center for Investigative Reporting found that hundreds of active duty and retired law enforcement officers from around the country were members of Confederate, anti-government, and anti-Islam groups on Facebook. But there is no official record of officers who are tied to white supremacists or other extremist groups because, in the U.S., there is no federal policy for screening or monitoring the country's 800,000-plus law enforcement officers for extremist views. The 18 thousand or so police departments across the country are largely left to police themselves now uh, of course yeah that's a good call yeah 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 hey, and i have a suggestion it, if they police themselves why don't we police ourselves <laughs> i mean apparently the system works yeah according to yeah. you <laughs> you know what i'm saying like uh, i like i i just you can't I, people think we you think we're making this stuff up when we say, yo, cops are racist. I'm trying to tell you it's racism over there. Like, well, yeah. like I just, what, what possible gain do any of us have 
accusing falsely an entire organization to be racist like what like what what do you think my end game would be there's no yeah. like, i i gain nothing from making this stuff up yeah it's and again, like people always focus on like, you know, oh, well, you know, that's not that many police officers, you know, when you, you, you read them, the numbers like that compared to how many there are. And it's like, well, no, no, that, those are the ones that individual activists have yes. uh, for a, after hours, probably for each individual officer tracked yes. down and verified because, again, yeah. the government's not looking into this. But also, yeah. let's say there's a block party that happens next to your house right yes 100 people one of those people shoots you in the arm with a handgun for no reason and everyone else in the crowd hangs out around them and does nothing um and you complain about it and they're like well it was only one of us that shot you does does that matter (laughs) not at all yeah they're kind of all pieces of shit right you kind (laughs) of all just let me lay there yeah kind of a shit party (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. i don't like you or your homies you know what i'm saying yeah In 2017, a classified FBI counterterrorism policy guide was obtained by The Intercept. I don't know how they got this, but there are actually quite a few police uh, FBI agents who are real pissed about this problem and seem to be vigorously leaking information to the press um in a section focused on how the bureau lists individuals on a terrorism watch list the authors note that quote and again the authors being the fucking fbi domestic terrorism investigations focused on militia extremists white supremacist extremists and sovereign citizen extremists often have identified active links to law enforcement officers the fbi goes on to note that they had to alter some of their policies when dealing with local law enforcement to account for the fact that so many of them are members of extremist groups (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's but, too many of y'all yeah we gotta like we've had to change how we interact with cops as the fbi because we're scared of you motherfuckers <laughs> god duh. I, one of the, the one of the justifiable criticisms of uh of this series we're doing is that we're not really going to lean into the fbi much because i've kind of determined yeah. to focus on lo- like cops like Local like normal law, yeah. police law like the the folks in the street even though there yeah. is a very long and well worth discussing history of racism within the fbi um yeah. we talk about that quite a bit in our two-parter on the the, the bastards who killed the black panthers yeah we did we'll uh-huh. get into it a bit next week um but we're going to focus really on like you know, beat cops essentially, and yeah, like what leads to them, police departments. Just because I can't, we can't do this for like ten straight weeks. Um, we we I both know. have other stuff we got to deal with. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> the term "ghost skins" is often used by white supremacists to refer to folks who basically hide their power level to gain respected jobs in society and advanced white supremacy. Law enforcement is a particularly prized field for these ghost skins because it gives them virtually unchecked opportunities to do violence to non-white people. One example of this would be a gang of officers within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department who, in 1991, embarked on a campaign of vandalism and the beating and torturing of black Californians. Have you heard of the Linwood Vikings prop? Yes, I have. Yeah. The Linwood Vikings were a violent neo-Nazi gang that committed arson and murder and torture on black Californians. And the gang was entirely made up of Los Angeles County Sheriff's officers. It was a neo-Nazi gang that was all sheriff's officers. Let that sink in. Let that sink in and now think of the young man who was recently found hung to death in Palmdale, California. Yeah. And who was declared a suicide by Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Yes. And then the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was in a gunfight with his half-brother where they killed him a couple of days later. Yes. And that it is is reported that the Palmdale 
chunk of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has what they call the news called cliques within it. Yeah. That yes. were you might call them gangs, maybe like the Linwood Vikings, because this keeps happening. Weird. <laughs> because this is not history. It's yeah. Not. Yeah. Yes. People need to know more about the Linwood Vikings. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's cool. We're going to talk about John Burge in Chicago uh, in the next mm-hmm. episode. Okay. Um, but let, let, for right now, uh, The Intercept goes on to give a couple other examples. And I'm going to quote from their article again. In Cleveland, officials found that a number of police officers had scrawled racist or Nazi graffiti throughout their department's locker rooms. In Texas, two police officers were fired when it was discovered that they were Klansmen. One of them said he had tried to boost the organization's membership by giving an application to a fellow officer he thought shared his white Christian heterosexual values. Now, in 2015, to his very minor credit, FBI Director James Comey acknowledged in a speech that all of us in law enforcement must be honest enough to acknowledge that much of our history is not pretty. This is about as close as you're going to get to having an actual member of law enforcement admit that. In fact, the cops and the Klan regularly do go hand in hand. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, good stuff. Take a deep breath, everybody. Good stuff. Yeah. Breathe out. Mm Mm-hmm. Woo! Woo! Yeah. Welcome to the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about lynching on Thursday. Um, And we're going to talk about how the police defeated lynching by something that's arguably as bad. So, yeah. Yay. Yeah. I feel wonderful right now. I am. I didn't. We didn't. Should have maybe not scheduled this recording session for Juneteenth. I do feel uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do feel bad about that. <laughs> I don't know. It's the day I was, yeah. my emotions are all over yeah. the place right now. Nah, it's all good. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, you know, in a lot of ways, like like we were talking off camera or off camera, off mic, like yeah. I don't I don't know because it's never actually We've never had to celebrate this holiday with anybody else, so there's no actual traditions for June. Yeah, except for to think about what all the shit we didn't went through. Yeah, and the fact that we survived it. You know what I'm saying? That's usually which, and then we go down to you know Crenshaw and eat some barbecue. But I'm like, this is actually great. It's like, look, and and I'll, maybe we'll end it on a high note. It's like, and yet we still exist. Yeah, and yeah. yet we still are here. You know? Yeah, and like have been forcing the situation to suck less consistently yeah. for yeah. a couple of centuries of yes. of fighting like trench like the emotional equivalent of trench warfare. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I guess a good tradition for white folks like myself and like Sophie is to is to do this is to spend Juneteenth yeah. going like Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Oh fuck! We did what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, good God! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, prop. You got any pluggables to plug before we roll out of here? Yeah, dude. Prophiphop.com. Uh, I got a bunch of new merch. Um, California is now required face masks, so I got some mm-hmm. face masks there. Hell yeah! You hear uh, that, flat earther neighbors? Required by state. Yeah. Yeah. You got flat earther neighbors, dude. Can we just pause for that one? I mean, statistically, we all do now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's like, Uh, I had the building make like red signs 
that say to wear face masks in the elevator and yeah. uh karen and ken i don't know their fucking names i hate them of course uh, of course just walk around like dee, 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 dee. and then i'm like hey how about a face mask and they kind of just look at me like i've said something in a language they don't understand and run away yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah go get some coffee go get some face masks got some new water flasks too yeah uh, yeah prop has yeah. the best I'll- merch you guys Dude, thank you. And it's yeah. all earth friendly. It's all like zero waste. Like that's how I work. You know what I'm saying? Recyclable. Yep. The material is recyclable you know, or is recycled material. You know what I'm saying? I'm out here. I'm out here like being the good part of Portland. Mm-hmm. All earth sensitive. Hell yeah. Well, that's the episode. Um, go Go do some stuff. Yeah. Behind the Police is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment, from DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start, and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Raffi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby Beluga. So who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Raffi, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. From Cavalry Audio comes the new true crime podcast, The Shadow Girls. I grew up near the banks of the Green River and in the shadow of the killer that bears its name. Prosecutors described him as a serial killer savant. But this podcast isn't only about tracking down the killer. It's about the victims. We stayed in the woods. He always liked to go to the woods. Listen to The Shadow Girls on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.